throne room crying, Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah looked and he said, Woe am I, for I am a, a man of sinful lips and I live among a people of, of sinful lips and, and yet you redeemed him and, and you changed him and you sent him. And so in many ways we come this morning and we sing holy, holy, holy and we recognize that we're in the same condition. Woe is us if it weren't for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and love toward us. You redeem us and you change us and you call us and, and you send us. So Father, help us now to study well your word so that when we are sent and when we go, uh, we go in truth and we go in spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll finish out this chapter this morning. We're calling this series Dear Timothy because this is a letter written by Paul to young Timothy. Uh, we lear- we've learned a lot about Timothy. We're still learning more about him as we go through this uh, particular passage. I can't wait to meet him someday and hear how things went while he was there in Ephesus. But I want to read this little passage this morning uh, as Paul's return, if you will, to this topic of elders. He's talked about it already back in chapter 3. He returns to it now at the end of chapter 5 because there's a few more things that he wants to tell Timothy as he guides his church, appoints elders, and so forth. So follow along in your Bible or on the screen as I read verses 17 down through verse 25. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear." In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. As I've often said, one of the beauties of preaching expositionally, passage by passage, uh, through a book of the Bible, is that it does a couple things. It prevents a pastor from jumping on a hobby horse and riding it till its death. And it also prevents a pastor from skipping over passages that he'd rather not talk about. This particular little section really presents both of those scenarios. Because there are some pastors who may want to take this text and just hammer away at it. Because after all, it affects his pocketbook, right? There may be other pastors 
who absolutely want to avoid this passage altogether because if it's preached accurately, he might actually lose his job based on what it says. So this is one of those passages that, ah, boy, one way or the other. And so my prayer is this. As we go through this passage this morning, my prayer, as it really always is, is whether or not you agree with me on my interpretation of the text, you'll see where I get it. I'm not going to pull anything out of thin air. You can read it, you can see it, and you'll know where it comes from. So as we dive into these verses of Paul's concern for elders, I want to preach this passage just like I would preach any other passage in the Bible, with clarity and with conviction, right? With clarity and, and with conviction. I know that this passage has direct applicability to me. I get it. But this passage also has a lot to say for all of you as well and how you approach church leadership and how that's to look and so on and so forth. So let's learn together, okay, how to handle, handle this particular issue. If you've been with us recently, you'll know that Paul has just concluded in chapter 5 kind of a, a long section on care of widows. And he, he made a, a great case on why we should take widows and show them particular honor. Now he turns to another group of people, he returns to another group of people to whom honor should be shown, and that is to elders. And he says it specifically, a double honor. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But just like widows, when he talked about widows, he said widows are to be shown honor, but there are some boundaries that you need to put in place. That same kind of thought process Paul is going to attach now to elders. And he's going to say, yes, you are called to show them honor. And we'll look at what that looks like. But there are also boundaries. There are parameters outside of which elders should not go. And if they do, how do you handle that? Okay, so he, he lays all that at, out as well. So, so this is important because Paul wants to make sure that while honor is shown uh, to this particular group, Paul also wants to, everyone to understand no one is above the law, the law of God. No one is above the law of God. No one gets a pass uh, because of a title. Um, and so we submit to our Lord Jesus Christ. But what do we do uh, when elders, uh, pastors become abusive? Uh, maybe you've been the victim of a pastor who's been abusive somewhere in your life, maybe emotionally, uh, maybe physically, uh, maybe spiritually. That can be devastating uh, if you've ever had to go through an experience like that. So Paul wants to lay out for us procedures on how to deal with that. Okay, So this text, verses 17 down to verse 25, is laid out in three parts. You can see them in your message notes if you pull those out of the, out of the bulletin. Three parts. Compensating elders or caring for elders... Charging elders, what do you do when there's an accusation against an elder? Uh, and the last one is then commissioning elders. How do you appoint them to their job and send them out? So let's look at them in order. The first one is compensating elders. So look at verse 17 again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The word elders there is, is not referring to those who are simply older. Okay, So there are times when the, the Greek 
word that underlies that is translated aging or older. There are times when it's translated into a formal office, and that's what's being described here, the formal office of elder. Okay, so you can see that back in in chapter 3 where he talks about the qualifications for an elder. So he's talking about church leadership, elders. And he says, elders are to rule. Okay, that is, they are to supervise. They're, They're to give oversight. They're to give vision, direction to the body of believers. Elders are there to provide clarity where otherwise there's opportunity for chaos okay so elders are are simply a group of people that are giving some leadership in, in carrying it forward but elders aren't just to rule they are to rule well okay notice what he says there let, verse 17 let the elders who rule well okay well what does that mean uh, what does it mean for an elder to rule well? well let me tell you first of all what it doesn't mean Okay, it doesn't mean that an elder is heavy-handed. It, it, it does not mean that elders should be dictatorial, that my way or the highway. It's, it's not meant to be a, a CEO mentality where if you don't fall in line with the pastor, uh, he's just going to fire you and, and get rid of you, kick you out of the church. All right, that, that's not what, what it's meant to be. An elder who rules well is one who leads and supervises and guides with a great deal of humility and a desire to see others excel in their giftings. Okay, so I heard it once said that a pastor is the guy who hoists others up on his shoulders so that other people can see further down the horizon than he can. That's what a pastor who rules well uh, is to do. So while they're at the head of the church, while they're leading the church, what is their purpose? Why do elders exist? What are they supposed to be doing? Well, Ephesians 4 says they are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How does, a, how does an elder, how does a pastor, how does a church leader grow people, equip them for the works of ministry? They do it by preaching and teaching. Preaching and teaching. And listen, I get it. Leaders in a church are called to do a lot of other things. But at the very core of their ministry is preaching and teaching. I would argue that that's probably the most important part of what they do. In fact, an elder, uh, an elder who rules well, commits a lot of his precious time to preaching and teaching. If you have your Bibles open, keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 5 and go to just a couple pages over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. What do you see this commission that Paul later gives to Timothy when he writes him a, a second letter. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I, I, I love this passage. He, he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to do what? Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience 
and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Do you think that can happen today? Is it possible today for people to accumulate teachers that will itch their ears and they wander off in myths? You better believe it. It's probably easier today than in any time in history. We have so much access to so much information, to so many uh, magazines and TV programs and podcasts. It's amazing what all we can, we can get our hands on. And so elders who rule well labor over their preaching and teaching. Because they want to make sure and avoid people being knocked off, going into all these wrong paths. And so they give a lot of their time, a lot of their energy to preaching and teaching. Paul says back in 1 Timothy 5, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Laboring means to to Give it hard work to to weary yourself over it. For some of you around the church, you know on Tuesdays I pretty much lock the door and for hours as I spend laboring over the word. What does it mean? What's what's all the the underlying words? What what do others have to say about this? Helping to understand what does this mean? And and then on, on... on a typical week, on Wednesday morning, I'm, I'm coming into church and I'm praying and I'm writing this sermon. It takes several hours to get all that done. And, and on Sunday morning, I, I deliver this sermon that, I, that I've been working on and preparing on. And Monday morning, it starts all over again. It's, there, there's a labor of love. It's hard work. It's hard work. I go home on Tuesdays. I'm probably more exhausted than any other day of the week as I'm thinking through what it means I had a pastor tell me one time that he rarely prepares for sermons. He said just on his way to church, uh, as he's driving down the road, somewhere along the road, uh, God will give him a message, give him a topic, and give him something to say, and that's what he preaches on that morning. And you know, when I hear that, uh, and it was kind of said in a more of an, an ultra-spiritual kind of way, that's not laboring. That is sheer laziness. Honestly, far from being ultra-spiritual, that kind of an attitude toward preaching and teaching ought to be rebuked. Really should. Paul wouldn't even mention the word laboring if it wasn't hard work. Right? It is. It's hard work. Can the Holy Spirit give you something on the spot and you go with it? Well, of course He can. Is that His norm? No, it's not. It's, it, he, he wants us to get in there and dig into his word, right? So Paul says, for those elders who labor at, at teaching and preaching, they should be shown double honor, twice the honor. Well, what does that mean? Well, that word honor includes respect. It includes admiration. It clu- includes recognition. But that word in the New Testament also encompasses price, it encompasses proceeds, it encompasses payment, and so maybe that's where the double comes in. There's, there's this honor, there's this value, there's this verbal affirmation, but there's also this monetary affirmation, this, this care for this elder. And to make his point clear, Paul throws in a couple other scriptures, and he says, first, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. And back in those days, 
they would put all the grain in kind of this circular fashion. Well, some of you that are farmers know what threshing is, and so you're familiar with the concept. But they would put all the grain in this circular fashion. They would attach the ox to it, and the ox would walk around across the grain, and the good grain would fall out, and they would collect that. Well, while the ox is walking around, it was very natural for him to every now and then uh, stick his head down there and eat some of the grain, right? And so Paul's point is this. Just like Deuteronomy 25 says it is a kindness to the ox to let him eat of his labors, in the same way it's a kindness to that church leader to allow him to profit from his labors, right? If you muzzle that ox, (coughs) excuse me, if you muzzle that ox and he goes around and and treads that grain, you're going to get some labor out of him, but eventually what's going to happen? He's going to get fatigued. He's going to starve and he might fall over and die. It's the same thing as true of a pastor, right? If he, if he doesn't get some return for his labor, you're going to get some labor out of him. But eventually he's going to either literally starve to death or he's going to leave because he's got to go find food somewhere else. Right? And so Paul says, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. And then he quotes Jesus, and Jesus said, the laborer deserves his wages. That comes out of Luke 10 and verse 7. It's interesting, if you read the life of Paul, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 elected not to receive support from the church. He said, I'm going to make tents. I'm not going to receive uh, support from the church. But he clearly believed and repeatedly taught that it is not right for the church not to offer to help that pastor. It's how the pastor lives. A couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with one of my nephews. I don't know if he's here this morning, but if he is, he'll remember the story. Uh, He came up to me, somewhat unsolicited, and he said, Sean, Uncle Sean, do you run the church? Well, there's a lot of nuances to that, okay? He's a little guy, and so instead of going through all the nuances of whether or not I run the church, what exactly that means, I just said, well, yeah, I do. Why? He goes, it is not fair that you get all the VBS offering. (laughs) He said, you need to share that with others. And I thought, oh, friend, right? I don't get the VBS offering, all right? That, That goes somewhere else. But I do get compensated by the church. It's what allows me to provide for my family. It's what allows me to do what I do. And I'm eternally grateful for that. It's it's living out what Paul is talking about here uh, for pastors, right? The other side of that coin can be that pastors become money hungry. In fact, one of the qualifications for an elder, for a pastor, is that he's free from the love of money, right? So you don't want a pastor who every sermon, he's somewhere in that sermon throwing out there his financial needs, just hoping that somebody hears it and gives him a little extra on the side, right? You, you, you equip that pastor, you provide for that pastor in such a way that he's taken care of, um, but that it doesn't become a temptation Uh, And it doesn't become an opportunity for him to be money-grubbing from the pulpit. Okay, so it's an elder's compensation. What happens when an elder oversteps his bounds? What happens when an elder is caught in a sin? What do you do then? Look at verse 19. 
He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. First, Paul's saying, don't accept a charge against an elder, against a pastor, from just one person with no corroborating evidence, no other witnesses, nobody else. That stems from a law in Deuteronomy chapter 19 where it says, a single witness, one, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. This was meant to be a protection for the elder against false accusations. Someone who wanted to see intentional harm come to that pastor. That same requirement for multiple witnesses carries on throughout the whole Bible. In fact, even in the New Testament, Matthew 18 In 2 Corinthians 13, in Hebrews 10, over and over it says, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall you have a charge that's established. Now, does that mean that one or two other people have actually had to see the thing happen? I mean, what do you do when a a pastor, heaven forbid, sexually assaults someone and no one else is around? When that person speaks up, do you just dismiss that as nothing? No, that, that's, that's, not, that's not the intent that Paul's getting at here. The, the intent that Paul's getting at here is when a charge comes, that, th- this verse is not meant to shield that elder from a legitimate charge. This verse is meant to protect him from an illegitimate one. Because here's what happens when you become an elder, when you become a pastor. Like it or not, it's across the board you kind of have a little target on your back. It's kind of easy for someone to launch a charge against a pastor or an elder. It may have some element of truth to it. It might not. Okay? Uh, Maybe that person doesn't really like the pastor very well. Or maybe they don't like a decision that that elder made or that that board made. And so they begin kind of running around making claims that aren't substantiated and they end up they're just uh, spreading lies in an effort to discredit that pastor. This verse is meant to protect him from that happening. We had this happen once when I was a pastor in, in Indiana. We had a charge that was brought against one of our elders. It wasn't sexual in nature. It was something that he supposedly said. And this charge was leveled against this elder. And this man that brought the charge was so angry. It was, uh, Well, what we knew was this man didn't like this elder. He was kind of in his crosshairs at any point in time. This elder could do nothing right in this man's eyes. And so we asked this man, do you have someone else who can collaborate, give witness to what he said? Because supposedly it it was said in front of a lot of people. He couldn't provide anybody. There's nobody was willing to say, yeah, he did it. And so we chose to drop the charges. You're just, out, you're just out to get a pound of flesh from this man. So the, this, these verses guard him from that happening. But what happens if it's true? What happens if there are a couple of people that come alongside and say, yeah, there is evidence that happened. Maybe there's a pattern of sinful behavior in this elder's life. What do you do then? How do you handle that? Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, 
Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Apparently this is a, a public rebuke given in front of the congregation. I don't remember all of the details of the situation, but I remember uh, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, if you know him, he told a story once about an elder in his church who had an adulterous relationship with another woman. And Chuck Swindoll said he brought all the elders, when they, when they found out about the accusation, it was substantiated, it was true, it really did happen. He brought all the elders together uh, in, a, in an elders meeting, including the guy uh, that had been caught in the adulterous affair. And he knew why they were there. He knew that they were there to talk about him. And, and Chuck Swindoll said, when they all sat down and the room got quiet, he said, I pointed at the man and said, shame on you. Shame on you. You brought repute to our church, to you, and to Christ. How could you do this as an elder in this church? And man, even as I think about this story, the, the chills just go up my spine to have somebody put their finger in, their, in your face and rebuke you like that. And he said the elder was removed from office and he was publicly rebuked in front of the congregation. Now, why do that? Why, why do that? Why rebuke in front of all? Well, Paul says, so that the rest may stand in fear. What kind of fear? I didn't think we were supposed to be afraid. What kind of a fear? I thought fear was bad. He's talking about fear of the discipline of God. And I believe what Paul is saying is, I would rather have people tremble now and have the opportunity to repent instead of standing in front of God someday when there are no more chances left. He said, you rebuke him in front of everybody else so that the rest stand in fear. I don't want to be in that situation. Elders and pastors are not above godly rebuke if they persist in sin, if they carry on in sin, if they don't repent of sin. And Paul wants to make sure that Timothy doesn't give preferential treatment to a pastor over a layman. And so he throws in this incredibly powerful statement in verse 21. He says, In the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, and in the presence of all the elect angels, those are the the good angels, not the ones that defected with Satan, in the presence of all of these, I charge you, Timothy, to keep these rules without prejudging and without partiality. Every single person is equal in terms of their salvation and their obedience to God. It doesn't matter what title you have. We're all called to obey God in purity, in righteousness. Man, now as awful as that would be for something like that to happen, I hope that never has to happen here. As awful as that would be, how do you prevent that? Is there anything you can do to make sure that that doesn't happen or at least get, make steps for making sure that that doesn't happen? Yeah, there are. We call this, instead of just kicking people out the back door, let's protect the front door. And this is why Paul now returns to this idea of the elders commissioning. Okay, look at verse 22. He says, don't take part. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. 
one remarkable mistake that a church can make is to hastily install elders. To do it really quick without taking the time to make sure that you know who that elder is. Right? Maybe a church has been without a pastor for a long time, without an elder for a long time. And along comes this man, and their only question is basically, do you have a heartbeat? Then you can be our pastor. Okay? If that's the case, be careful. It might turn out good, but it might turn out really bad. Right? All of those character traits listed back in chapter 3, those are what distinguish elders from others. And Paul here is saying, Before you lay your hands on someone, that that was the act of commissioning, the act of ordaining, the act of calling someone into the eldership. Before you lay your hands on them, you make sure that you know this guy. You make sure that you've taken time to explore. Don't just hand him a checklist and ask him if he's fulfilled all these requirements. Because if you just hand him the checklist, he's going to check them all that he does them, right? I don't know that I've ever seen a checklist come back from a potential elder where he says, yeah, I'm a drunk. Yeah, my house is a mess. Yeah, I get a little violent with my wife every now and then. Not a big deal. Uh, Yeah, I can't control my tongue. That never happens. If that happened, you would immediately disqualify the guy, right? Everybody who fills out the paper says that they're the good guy, right? So you need this observation period. You need this time when you say, Let's check this guy out. So Paul's simply saying, take your time, Timothy. It might hurt in the short time. I get it. You want elders in there. You want to put leaders in there. But take your time. In the long run, you're going to be so much further off. Because if you run through this process and you just stick a guy in there and he turns out to be a scoundrel, you're going to do damage not just to him, but you're going to do damage to the entire church body. So take your time, examine his life, watch his character qualities, ask questions, ask other people. This will have massive implications for the church. And he says, if you don't do this, if you just hastily lay your hands on him, he says, in one way, you're taking part in his sin. Who wants that kind of a guilt? I don't want to hastily lay my hands on an elder, call him into that, and then he just wreaks havoc And then I'm partly to blame for that because I didn't take my time with him. Paul says, slow up the process. We'll come back to verse 23 in a second, but jump down to verse 24 and 25 because they carry on that, that thought. Paul says, the sins of some people are conspicuous. In other words, you look at some guys and you're like, yeah, he's a Christian, but there's no way he's an elder, okay? He's got a lot to work on. It's not that we're not willing to work with him, but he's just not ready for eldership, okay? But he says the, the good works of others are also can be conspicuous, but both sin and good works sometimes are hidden. And they take some time before you see those come out. And Paul's admonition here is, give it a waiting period, to see what you find out about this guy, good or bad. Give it a little bit of time. Maybe you'll see his good deeds come out, and for that you rejoice. But maybe when you begin digging in, and you begin checking up, you find out there's a lot of problems here. They weren't so conspicuous at first, but don't be hasty and, and miss those. That's why I appreciate the, the process that we use here at Bethel. Uh, for those of you that might not be familiar with it, if, you, if, if someone 
feels called to be an elder here at Bethel, we, we want them to go through an elder equipping class so they understand what that position entails. And then we have an interview with them and their wife, make sure that we know them. Uh, and, and, and then we come back to the congregation and we say, you affirm them. Do you agree with our assessment that this person should be an elder? And so it gives the congregation that uh, ability to speak into that, that process. And all the way through there, we're praying and we're, we're giving time uh, in order to gather this kind of information. How long do you give? Paul doesn't say. It's a, it's a matter of, of wisdom. But long enough that, that we try our best to know this person. Do we always get those decisions right? Not always, unfortunately. But by God's grace, we do our best with the criteria that he's set forth uh, in, in chapter 3. Okay, so go backwards now. Look at verse 23. What is this little parenthetical verse? If you notice, at least in my Bible, it has parentheses around it. Why, why does Paul throw in this uh, little interlude, if you will? He says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It, it doesn't really seem like it first glance that it fits the context of this passage and maybe it doesn't maybe Paul just happens to think about this and and kind of throws it in there but I think it is actually attached to the end of verse 22 If if you look at the end of verse 22 he says keep yourselves keep yourself pure now if you remember back in chapter 4 this church has struggled a little bit with asceticism. That is, uh, they were abstaining from certain things uh, for moral reasons. Uh, and, and Paul was coming along and saying, what God created, they were abstaining from certain foods, they were abstaining from marriage. And, and Paul had to come along and he had to correct that and say, no, 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 that, that's, not, that's not how it works. I think what Paul did here when he wrote those words, keep yourself pure. I wonder if Paul knew that while Timothy struggled with some health issues with his stomach, I wonder if Timothy also struggled with some of the same asceticism issues that were going on inside of this church. And so Paul might have been afraid that when Timothy read those words, he might go down this path of totally abstaining from wine when it might actually be beneficial for his stomach. And so he he throws out this verse and he says... Use a little wine for your stomach ailments. Two things I want you to note about that, okay? Notice he says, use a little wine. Not a lot, a little. And he connects it from a medicinal standpoint, okay? It doesn't take a gallon of whiskey to cure a stomach ache, okay? I think that's what he's trying to get at here. More could probably be said about that, but we'll leave it okay for now. So uh, throughout this whole section, Paul's overarching point is, Timothy, when you go into this church at Ephesus and you start appointing elders, make sure they're cared for. Make sure that when false charges are brought against them that, that you guard them from that. When legitimate charges come against them, you handle that. And then over, just be careful who you put in. Take your time. And I think he does all of these things because Paul has this beautiful 
wonderful concern for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, this little church that is planted here in Ephesus, it's going to go out in its community and it's going to do great works and it's going to tell other people about Jesus Christ. It's going to win people to the gospel. And, and Timothy, I don't want you bringing all those people back into this assembly, into the congregation, only to be met with hypocritical, nasty leadership. I want the leadership of the church to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reflect what it means to be forgiven and what it means to, to live with love and, and what it means to be uh, honoring to God. Don't, don't let the leadership of the church become a mockery and a ridicule to the gospel that you're out there preaching. So I would say for us, uh, Bethel, there's probably three applications that I would make. If you want to write these down, there's three applications that I would make out of this text. Number one is this. Let's make sure that we're showing honor to the church leaders among us. I don't say that in a self-serving way. I say that because Hebrews 13:17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Here's why. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Your church leaders, me and the other elders, are here, were put here to watch over your soul. That is a huge responsibility on our part. On your part, it should be an opportunity for gratefulness. God, thank you that you would put godly people, if they match the criteria out of this, the scriptures, thank you that you would put people like this in my life to watch over my soul, to help and guide me and, and lead me. God, you are being kind to me to put people in my life who are concerned about me, who will one day give an account for the way they taught me. I want to be a joy to them in how they lead me. Don't undervalue those leaders that God has put in your, in your path. Secondly, second application that I would take from this is this. To make a private accusation, a one witness accusation, a private accusation against your pastor or elder is sin. And to receive a private accusation against your elder or against your pastor is sinful. If there is a legitimate accusation, Paul has just told us how to handle that. You take a witness or two, you go to another elder, you take it to the church, you address it through the process that he's... But if you're just one-on-one telling somebody else all the awful things about your pastor and your elder, you need to repent. That's your honor here, right? Don't become a conduit for gospel for which you will give an account someday. And then the third thing that I would take out of here is as we move through this new leadership structure at Bethel, and for those of you that were here at our last business meeting, uh, we were moving into an elder deacon kind of a format. Uh, Let's do our due diligence and make sure that the leaders we put in place, that we take our time, that we choose godly men who meet these qualifications that Paul's laid out in 1 Timothy 3 for elders and deacons, and that we make sure that we're not hasty. That way we'll be less likely to end up in a situation where we have to issue a public rebuke. Nobody wants to do that. So let's make sure 
that we pray and ask God, God, help us to raise up leaders who follow well after Jesus and can rule well with our souls, care for our souls and mind. Will you do those three things? Will you help do that? It comes out of his honor, no false accusations. And let's make sure we put good leaders in place. Why don't you bow your heads and pray with me? We'll ask God to do that now. Father God, thank you uh, for the kindness of preserving your word by the Holy Spirit written down for our instruction, for our good, but ultimately for your glory. Because when a church honors the elders who rule well, when they protect elders against false accusations, when they hold elders accountable uh, for true accusations, and when they place godly leaders in place, you end up looking great. You get the glory. Because people looking in on a church like that says, that church honors God, obeys God, follows well after God. That church is, is sincere in its desire to have a bride of purity, that when the bridegroom comes back, they can be uh, excited and, and, and proud of that and not ashamed for a bride that otherwise could have been really damaged and not fit for that. So I thank you, God, that you preserve us. I pray as Bethel that we would do a good job of carrying out uh, these commandments here, I pray that you would help us. We need a lot of wisdom. We need a lot of discernment. We want to make sure that uh, leaders in our church first follow after Jesus, secondly have a heart for people. And, and Father, I pray that the the emails and the compliments and the activities we're involved in, while those excite us and, and those charge us up, that our greatest excitement would be that we are found to be in obedience to you that we would find blessing there that no matter what else happens in life, if we know that we have your kindness and your favor and your, your uh, joy over us, we have it all. And so, Father, help us to be that kind of church. Help me to be that kind of leader. Help our current elders to be those kinds of leaders and any other that you call up to follow in our footsteps.